0: This is Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton. More and more of us are seriously worrying about what we've done to the Earth's climate.
1: Eco-anxiety and eco-grief have just jumped way up in public awareness.
0: Climate predictions can be scary, but we don't have to live in a place of fear or denial.
1: We all need a real practice
2: to be able to not be afraid of our fear, to not be afraid of our despair and our anxiety, and to learn some really concrete practices to be able to acknowledge it, recognize it, and embrace it every time it
0: comes up. A Zen Buddhist nun says accepting our feelings can make us stronger and more ready to act.
2: And the power of Zen and the power of mindfulness is that it it roots us in the present moment so we can be alert to what is going on, we can be responsive, we can be the master of our mind and awareness in any given situation.
0: Before we get into today's show, exploring emotional resilience in the face of the climate crisis, we're continuing our weekly look at the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow next month. Estimates suggest there are over 5 billion people of faith worldwide, and religions continue to be a dominant political and moral force even in societies driven by science and technology. This week, our correspondent, Aman Azhar, explores how world religions are intersecting
3: with the climate movement and the run-up to COP26. Religion's outsized influence on many aspects of her personal, social, and political lives begs the question what role should religious institutions play in the upcoming climate forum in Glasgow? Dr. Jennifer Hurt, professor of Christian ethics at the Yale Divinity School, points to a growing movement among many religious leaders to weigh in on the climate crisis.
4: One basic indication of this is a meeting that was held where 40 religious leaders from around the world gathered at the Vatican, representing 10 religious traditions, and together signed a joint climate appeal, planned to be delivered to the COP26 president um, in advance of the gathering in Glasgow in November.
3: Stephanie Casa, educator and author of several books including Green Buddhism, says, world religions generally don't have a seat at forums such as COP because of their highly structured and political nature.
5: They are more effective in the non-governmental organization forums, the NGOs. That's where the environmental and social justice groups can use moral support and very much appreciate when the religions step forward to say, we believe in what you're doing, we want to support
3: you. Kaza says religious leaders of all faiths can also encourage or motivate their membership to be aware and engage more with climate issues.
5: These leaders have moral authority and they are in the position to use their traditions, cultures, teachings to address the tremendous moral injury afflicted on this planet. And also in a position to lead towards a more sustainable and positive future.
3: Jennifer Hurd says there are several examples in the history where religious institutions energized social movements.
4: Gandhi and the movement for Indian independence or the U.S. civil rights movement, major movements for social change have so often involved a central religious motivation and a religious mobilization of people. So uh, this is not just uh, you know nice words, icing on a cake. This, this is powerful.
3: She says the same could apply to the urgency to combat climate change. Hurt points out one problem is the perception that religious thought is opposed to science, which religious leaders are trying to address through statements like the one issued recently at the Vatican gathering.
4: One thing that I would point to in the US context is the fact that increasingly we see evangelical Christian leaders who once were utterly indifferent to issues of climate change. Increasingly we see Um, these leaders calling for attention to the climate crisis and calling for important forms of reinterpretation of the tradition. Say for example, away from the notion that human beings have been given dominion in the sense of an authorization to exploit nature and instead understanding uh, human responsibility for caretaking of nature.
3: But Hurd says a lot more work still needs to be done. In addition to the pressure from grassroots religious groups to mobilize climate action locally, Stephanie Kaza says the world leaders at COP need prayers and blessings. Political leaders
5: everywhere are under so much pressure to deliver solutions to the world. And I'm really serious about prayers in the sense of well-wishing, blessing, attention-giving, This is something that every religious practitioner, whether they're Muslim or Jewish or Christian or Buddhist, they can offer their attention and well-wishing for good outcomes at the COP meetings.
3: Next month's COP26 can be an effective forum for religions and science to join forces in combating the biggest existential threat facing humanity. For Climate One in Washington DC, this is Amanazar. Today we're talking about
0: emotional resilience in the era of climate disruption. Sister True Dedication is a Zen Buddhist nun and editor of Thich Nhat Hanh's latest book, Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet. Internationally renowned Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh was a refugee from the Vietnam War when Martin Luther King nominated him for a Nobel Peace Prize for his work to end that war. A few years later, he actively worked to rescue other Vietnamese refugees. I asked Sister True Dedication how that experience shaped his understanding of what he calls awakened action.
2: I think around the time when Thai was calling for peace, uh, so uh, we call Thich Nhat Hanh Thai, it means teacher. So when he left Vietnam to call for peace, and actually that's what led to his exile, that he had dared to call for peace. And it was while he was traveling the world, calling for peace, that he became aware of the situation of the boat people. At the time he reflected something like this, he said, if compassion doesn't lead to action, how can you call it compassion? So there's really this sense in the whole of Thay's life that compassion has to be expressed in the way we live our life, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we engage. So compassion isn't something that you cultivate in the sitting meditation um, position in a monastery or a temple, but it's something that should really be embodied with how we spend our time and our energy.
0: Right, so if action is healing, how does that apply to climate?
2: Well, Tai is so powerful on this, and I remember we were at the, the parliament in the UK in London, and, and he said something like this. He said, what is at the root of the problem? We don't need more science. We have enough science. We don't need more technology. We have the technological solutions. We even have the policies. What is lacking is the insight the way of seeing and thinking in our collective consciousness in the human psyche there is something that we haven't woken up to so for thai what um contemplation mindfulness and meditation have to do with the climate crisis is actually in this moment we're all being called to a much deeper braver awakening that hasn't happened yet we have to really wake up to the severity of the situation and Change our whole way of, of seeing, and for Thai, perhaps we could call it, you know, insight. We we all need to get a certain insight, and it's the insight that we don't have, and that's why that you know it's so difficult to take action.
0: I often encounter people in the climate conversation who are so scared and so worried about the urgency that we must act quickly. I think people are so scared they think that any action is good action. And other people will say, no, we need to slow down and think about more intentional action. But that seems hard to do when literally the earth, our home is on fire.
2: I think even as Buddhists, we acknowledge the urgency of the situation. The question is, how do we respond to that urgency? And how can we get the strength we need, the insight we need to not panic? And I think what happens to a lot of us in the urgency is We're in a a, a knee-jerk mode, in a reactive um, state in our own lives. And we just really have to remember that the activists, the scientists, the people who are working at the forefront of tackling the... Climate crisis. We're all human beings. And that urgency, we can't live in that state of heightened arousal. You know, it just can destroy our body and mind. So we are also part of the earth. And so we want to, to contribute in such a way that is sustainable and healthy for ourselves while we act urgently. And the power of Zen and the power of mindfulness is that it it roots us in the present moment so we can be alert to what is going on. We can be responsive. We can be the master of our mind and awareness in any given situation. So we can really have the present moment as the ground for our urgent action. And that is action taken with clarity, with courage, with solidity, with freedom and not with panic. It's about leaning into the feelings of fear and despair and i feel like anyone active in this field and honestly anyone citi- any citizen on the planet right now i feel we all need a real practice to be able to not be afraid not be afraid of our fear to not be afraid of our despair and our anxiety and to learn some really concrete practices to be able to acknowledge it recognize it and embrace it on a on a daily basis every time it comes up. And more deeply, actually, to lean into that fear and despair and accept that it is very possible that we won't manage to turn this around. There's a certain acceptance that can come with that and a certain, what Ty called, um, you know, peace and freedom. And it's like, all right, well, we've got nothing to lose because everything you know, may, the, the odds may be stacked against us and, and that can liberate us, I think, from the, from the panic and the anxiety to have a kind of peace, of freedom. And then all the action can come from love. We're not measuring the consequences of our action. We're just human beings, part of the, all the species on this beautiful planet, trying our best.
0: And before you became a Zen Buddhist nun, you worked as a journalist for the BBC you know, as part of the media who's dispersing knowledge, hopefully also some insight here on Climate One. I'm particularly curious to know how you think about your past profession, distributing information, and what you're doing now when it comes to climate consciousness.
2: So the insight I got working in the, the newsroom was that yeah, you can have a lot of information, but not much insight. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the information business, right? Mm-hmm. It, there's not enough reflection. Uh, for me, For me, there wasn't enough stepping back and really taking stock of things. And actually, I was really defined um, by the time I came into the newsroom. I entered in 2003 with the Iraq war. And at that time, I was already a, a, a peace activist. So it was quite something to swallow to be involved in that um, news coverage. And what upset me the most was a few weeks into um, starting to work there, we had the the huge protests in the UK. They were some of the biggest political protests in British history at the time, and yet the BBC almost refused to cover it. And, and that really did something to my soul to witness that and, and to work with these human beings and to want to understand why these human beings, colleagues I cared about um, in the newsroom had different priorities for how they wanted to to cover the news so for me I also realized that our news media is uh, the system is deeply flawed and that each one of us can still be an agent of change wherever we are
0: how did you get from there to the teachings of Tiknahan? Han
2: so actually I studied at Cambridge University and actually I, I I had gone to the monastery uh, before I started working for the BBC. Um, I went to the monastery the summer I graduated, because I felt that although I'd gone to the what was then the top university in the country, I felt so shortchanged at the end. I thought, how am I equipped to contribute? to to life and society and i had a real sense i think of the environmental crisis and and climate change which we then still called global warming i had a real sense of it and i just felt how has my has three, four years of study, how has it actually equipped me to deal with this? And I didn't feel any wiser and I I didn't feel I had what I needed to know. So I thought, well, okay, (laughs) my parents, family and friends are happy. I got the degree. So now I'm off to actually do the real seeking and the real learning. And so I think it really was this search for wisdom rather than knowledge, like real wisdom. Like really, what's it about? Really, what are we going to do about these pressing problems internally and externally? those deepest questions of our own hearts and the deepest questions that confront us as a species. So I was 21 when I first came here to Plum Village in France and sat in the meditation hall with Thich Nhat Hanh, Thai, and, and heard my first teachings. And, and what really struck me actually was um, as a young woman, um, I had an opportunity to to stay and live with the other nuns. And I thought these are some pretty cool pretty cool women and they were the wisest <laughs> women i'd met and i thought gosh who would have, i had no idea that the women grouped together to cultivate wisdom together and that some a young woman like me can come and there was no question i was really struck because there was no question that they were afraid of Nothing was off limits about despair, about grief, about the meaning of life, about death, about loss, about healing deep wounds. Like there was this is really a community of yeah truth seekers. And that really struck me. So I kept coming back.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about Zen approaches to climate disruption. Coming up the importance of teaching present moment resilience as a tool to respond to the climate crisis.
2: So that they can be in each moment, no matter what it looks like, no matter how bad it will be, and have all the clarity of mind, all the courage, and all the solidity they need to meet those moments in the right way.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton and we're talking about building emotional resilience during the climate crisis with Zen Buddhist nun, Sister True Dedication. When faced with the harsh reality of our climate future, many people get paralyzed thinking their own actions don't matter because the scale of the problem is so big. But Sister True Dedication says we should think less about the consequences of an individual decision and more about the feeling of agency we feel when acting in the present moment.
2: We say that the present moment contains the past and the future. It contains all the moments in it, right? So something we do now, we are already enacting what the future will look like. And we can call it karma sometimes, right? So we have a karmic energy and that that energy, each one of us is impacting on the world, every single moment every single day the way we speak the way we listen the way we interact with the economy uh, whatever actions we do that is our karmic kind of resonance that's continuing out in the world this is very important in thai's teaching and in our um, approach to understanding how we act um, in relation to the climate which is we're in the present moment the present moment is very important. First of all, it's the only moment that's that's real, right? Mm-hmm. And and in this moment, it's like our turn to be alive. We are the the fruition, not just of our immediate ancestry and and heritage and lineage, but you know, biologists will tell us we are the fruit of millions of years of evolution, and this is our moment. So. Anything we can do, anything we can say, anything we can act, when we act, it is not only us acting, it is our entire ancestry acting through us in this moment. And if that is true of our ancestors, it is also true of our descendants. So it, it gives our, our action a huge um, a vast scope. and this is what we call like interbeing, the insight of interbeing operating in our daily decisions, and that's like the, along the axis of time.
0: The book also talks about throwing away the notion of self, that we're not separate from the earth any more than a wave is separate from from the ocean. So talk about that.
2: In the book, we explore it through the teachings of a very important Zen sutra called the Diamond Sutra, which you may be familiar with. And it's, for me, a really eloquent and, and visual way to understand these teachings of no self, which can sometimes be very scary for people. It's like, what do you mean? I don't exist. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but no self, it doesn't mean I don't exist. It means I don't exist as a separate, permanent self-entity cut off from the rest, either of space and time. <laughs> so, another way that we talk about non-self um, in our tradition is that we say, we say we are empty of a separate self, but we are full of the cosmos so you greg you are full of the sunshine the rain everything you have been eating your wonderful moments in nature your relationships your education your culture your society everything all the inputs you have had over your entire life have shaped and formed you and you are a wonderful impermanent continuum that has evolved over time and and this is when we say no self this is what we mean we are We are vast, we contain multitudes.
0: (laughs) And you say a very key word, impermanent, because I sometimes think that, you know, Zen starts with the impermanence of things, change, uh, and it's our human desire to keep the things the same, the attachment to keeping things the same. So I'm curious about our attachment to permanence and how that relates to climate change and climate disruption.
2: I think for me, probably... uh... Our, our insight on it would be that when we can really embrace the truth of impermanence, we become free to explore radical solutions. Mm. And I think a lot of the heel dragging and the delays and the obstacles and the compromises and the unmet goals and all of these things. Just the solutions aren't anywhere near radical enough because there's too much fear and there's too much grasping. We're sure that we need this kind of economy that needs to function in this kind of way. We need these kind of comforts. And it's just not true. <laughs> these are not things that make us happier.. happier is, happiness is not made of these material systems and, and, and comforts. You know Deep happiness exists far beyond that. And so the human need for permanence is a fear of fear of change and a need, need for security and comfort. And I think this speaks to why we need a spiritual dimension as part of the response to this crisis, because actually when we have spiritual strength, we know that our security doesn't lie in this kind of capitalist growth economy. We know that our security doesn't lie in this kind of structure to the economy. So for me, I wish everyone could um, break through and have uh, a lot less fear of impermanence and to embrace the possibilities of impermanence.
0: So for most people who are listening to this, fair to say they probably don't have a meditation practice. So what are some little steps people might tiptoe onto this path that you're talking about? Because it seems so overwhelming. I have to you know, sit in silence and darkness for an hour in a robe, and that sounds hard and scary for me.
2: <laughs> oh, I quite understand that. For us, mindfulness is um, most of the time outside the meditation hall. So for those of us who would like to experience a little of this, for me, it would be, I would invite um, your listeners to to go out into nature. I don't know, maybe they're even listening to this outside in nature. And to take time to uh, relax the body and practice what we call mindful breathing out in the natural world. So even if it's just a park in an urban setting or your backyard, put the phone away. Right. (laughs) And to really uh, be with our body. Uh, release the tension in our body that you know often in mindfulness practice actually what we're doing is we're just sort of suddenly we start listening to our body we come back to the body and we the first response is usually ow (laughs) ow my shoulders
6: hurt
0: my knees
2: my (laughs) my knees ow my jaw is tense (laughs) you know so there's a sense and 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 so we actually get a chance to release a bit of tension and use um, the breathing, especially the out breath um, to release the tension. And many people are familiar with yoga practice. And so really allowing the breathing to soothe and calm the body. And then just to take time, I would say, to listen. So in this case, say we're out and sitting underneath a tree just to listen to the birds. And if we're listening to the birds, we know we're in the present moment. We know we're alive. We know we are in touch with the miracles of life. And to just maybe take 10, 20 breaths, uh, full in and out breaths, listening to the birds, the wind in the leaves, um, whatever's going on, the hum of the city. And just, you know, um, sometimes we, we use simple phrases like breathing in, I know I'm alive, breathing out. I am so happy to be alive. (laughs) Mm. You know, just very simple. Or breathing in, I arrive on this planet. I know I'm here on this planet. Breathing out, I am home. I'm at home in this moment on this beautiful planet. And this kind of a, a regular practice of just being with our breathing body out in nature and letting the the sounds, the smells, and the, the energy of the earth penetrate us. It's, it's like daily medicine, and I feel we all need to take time to do it.
0: There's been a lot of difficult headlines lately with people drowning in subways and fires and Europe everywhere. Do you experience climate grief? And if so, how do you process those difficult feelings about what humans are doing to this Ecosystem that we're a part of—that you describe, the interbeing—I
2: do experience climate grief. Um, that wonderful wo- word, solastalgia.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: I think I've been living here in Plum Village, we're in the southwest of France, the monastery founded by our teacher forty years ago, and I've been coming here since I was twenty, so almost twenty years, and uh, there are fewer fewer butterflies, there's not the diversity of spiders. They can't grow the same crops anymore, so they're shifting to drier crops like sorghum. The creeks that used to run with water don't run with water anymore because they have to use all the the water for irrigation. The trees struggle from the droughts that we've had um, in the last 10 or 15 years. So. It's something that I am am witness to, just as many of us are, wherever we are, we are witness to the changes in the climate where we are, to the changes in the biodiversity. I was struggling with this uh, a couple of years ago. So I decided I needed to introduce some more elements in my day that were more proactive uh, in terms of taking care of my environment. So my favorite oaks that I could see were struggling in the drought. Two years ago, I was able to harvest all the acorns that had started sprouting underneath these two mother oaks. I call them mother oaks, and uh, so I have uh, 40, 42 oaks uh, that I'm taking care of, which is um, requires more attention than you'd ever imagine. <laughs> um, but that is my—it's like a daily prayer to tend to them, to make sure they have shade and water and so on it is a way of being with the world which is myself becoming part of that nurturing but i think it is very important that we can actively contribute to nurturing life in whatever, whatever ways we can and and i bring my grief into those moments and this really comes back to this not measuring unconditional loving action and not measuring um for me more at the at the deeper personal level For me, my wish is to metabolize my grief into into action. So it's to say my grief, what's grief if not love persevering, right? This is a a famous line I think that um, came out in this year. So our grief is a sign of love. And so for me, my grief is also a mindfulness bell, a reminder uh, to keep that love alive and to do whatever I can, in how I spend my time and energy to be a part of of the solution.
0: And we don't need to become monastics to do that, right? We don't need to choose a life path that you've chosen to turn grief into healing actions.
2: This is where the means and ends is very important. And I think in Christiana Figueres, when you had your wonderful conversation with her a couple of years back, you explored this issue with her, which is that as soon as we start to sacrifice the means for the ends, we get in into a real state because we're sacrificing the very thing we're trying to protect in order to protect to protect that thing i mean this is the what we have to be able to transmit to future generations so that they can be in each moment no matter what it looks like no matter how bad it will be and have all the clarity of mind all the courage and all the solidity they need to meet those moments in the right way and 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 so this is why for me present moment resilience is is it's what is most urgent actually at the moment as well as all the other actions
0: You mentioned uh, Christiana Figueres, one of the architects of the Paris Climate Agreement. She is a student of Thich Nhat Hanh. For those who are not familiar with her, her story, you know, she was in a very dark place. She found Buddhism that helped her move forward and and really uh, bring the Paris Climate Accord into into being. So how has she put these teachings into practice? Because it had a huge impact on Paris Climate Accord happening.
2: Yeah, Christiana's story is amazing. She she wrote to Ty a couple of years ahead of the Paris Climate Agreement, asking for his support, and then he asked me to to take care of this relationship. So we've been in touch with her all along that road to to Paris, and then we were able to be there in Paris to to support her. And Christiana speaks both on a personal level, how uh, Thay's teachings and the practice of mindfulness and these insights of interbeing have helped her in her own path of healing and her own personal resilience and courage, and I would say joy, Christiana mm-hmm. is full yeah. of uh, joy yeah. and love. Um, but also actually in the negotiations themselves. Christiana practiced something that she learned and has practiced with us um, and deepened with us, but is a very talented practitioner of this. And that is deep listening, what we call deep and compassionate listening. And so uh, mindfulness is not only about sitting, it's about everything we're doing in the day, including how we talk to others and how, how we listen to others. And there's a way we can learn to listen that we're grounded in our body, We're able to follow our breathing while we listen. We're able to take care of the reactions in our body and mind as we're listening to the other person. And it allows for a really deep connection and understanding of the other person. Whether that other person is someone we love, (laughs) whether it's someone we have real difficulties with, And Christiana spoke about this in the negotiations, where she was having to listen to so many different parties who were at loggerheads um, in the negotiations and how that quality of really coming as an open hearted, open minded, fully present, compassionate listener transformed the dynamic in some of these really critical moments in the negotiations. And uh, I think she described it as the soft skill that helped her the most in bringing the Paris Agreement together to, to realize it.
0: Well, looking ahead in the UK, there's going to be a big climate summit, of course, COP26 coming up in Glasgow. You're going to be there in some capacity. So how are you looking to Glasgow yourself and how would you suggest that other people who may have some role or thinking about Glasgow um, approach it mindfully and intentionally?
2: I think what's needed most as we approach Glasgow and the, the COP26 is courage. It's quite simply courage and courage rather than compromise, non-fear rather than hesitancy. And we have to open our hearts to this reality that we can save the planet together or we won't save it at all. And we have to operate as one species and and we have to help one another. And those countries, including my own, the UK, that have more, more privilege, more resources, we're really called upon now for, on a real moral front to really do everything we can to be generous, to be responsible, to be accountable. You know, we've had our time. We've had our... Uh, centuries of high consumption. And for me, it's really to see each other, you know, as human beings. Somehow we've got to get out of the, the silos of nations and countries and industries and all the rest of it and just meet each other as human beings and to really understand what our ancestors and what our descendants are calling on us to do in this moment we're not coming as a representative of an oil company. We're not coming as a representative of one country. We're not coming as a representative of one NGO or activist organizations. We're coming as ambassadors of our species to do our best in this difficult moment, to be brave, to be fearless, and not to compromise, to embrace all the qualities of impermanence, uh, radical creativity to really find the solutions that we know will work and to not settle for anything less.
0: Well, Sister True Dedication, Zen Buddhist nun and editor of Chick Hans' new book, Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet. Sister True Dedication, thank you. It's been an honor and a blessing to be with you today. And thank you for sharing your, your insights and your wisdom about climate and our being, what this is calling us to do and be.
2: Thank you so much, Greg, for having me. It's been such a pleasure to spend this time with you.
0: You're listening to a conversation about using emotional resilience to cope with the climate crisis. Coming up, how to help kids connect with and process their feelings about climate disruption.
1: Make room for and welcome the feelings. Validate that the feelings are there because you care, because you're paying attention, because it is distressing what's happening to the environment and people and our biosphere as a whole.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. Leslie Davenport is a licensed psychotherapist and author of Emotional Resiliency in the Era of Climate Change. Her new book, All the Feelings Under the Sun, How to Deal with Climate Change, is targeted at middle school kids. Davenport told Climate One's Ariana Brocious that many kids struggle with climate anxiety and grief.
1: If we're talking about kids as young as eight and nine, um, they are still struggling in an appropriate way, in an age-appropriate way, to get a full context. So they might just get one little bit of news about the polar bears being threatened or something like that that really touches them in some way. And so they will often go into that fear, that sadness, that uh, upset without knowing how to put together the full picture of what's happening. I see it a lot actually in physical symptoms. It shows up like stomach aches, headaches, being kind of agitated, maybe not wanting to go to school or being irritable. And it takes... um, really good communication and tuning into them and encouraging them to talk more about it to sometimes get to what the real issue is for them.
6: In your new book, All the Feelings Under the Sun, you're writing to a middle school age audience, but you don't shy away from or sugarcoat the hard facts about climate disruption. For example, air pollution deaths, colony collapse disorder, environmental racism. And I have to say, even as an adult reading this book, I felt some despair and grief reading about some of these things. So what level of information did you want to convey to these young readers and how hard was it? to strike the balance between informing them and scaring them.
1: Yes, no, that's a very fine line. I'm curious, as you read the book, if you did any of the exercises.
6: (laughs) I have done some things like that in my own life. Uh, Mindfulness practices, breathing, things like that. I didn't do them all. uh, I didn't do the homework.
1: (laughs) Well, and I raise it because the structure of the book was very intentionally built on a Trauma model, meaning you present challenging information, some of the things you described, and you pair it with emotional resiliency practices or emotional intelligence practices. And it's that going back and forth between the two is called toggling in trauma studies. And it's very intentional that it was presented that way because as you you know as you were relating as adults you know we get plenty of information but we don't know what to do with it and the part that's been lacking is really attending to the tremendous emotional response so this was very specifically about attending to presenting as clear of information as could be done in a way that didn't sugarcoat it, but as you say, didn't shy away from it. But like I said, you know, so many of these kids were already getting bits and pieces of information or didn't know what to do with it or how does it, again, fit into this bigger picture of what's happening around them.
6: Your book validates feelings of grief and fear for young people. And then balances that with these tools for coping, like breathing strategies and writing exercises. So just to give an example, can you describe the internal weather report exercise and its purpose?
1: Yes, Um, the internal weather report comes very early in the book, and it's a way to encourage kids to get in touch with their feelings and emotions, to identify them, to notice them. So they're asked to record uh, three times a day for a while, a couple weeks, how they're feeling in the morning, the afternoon, and the evening. But to do it in weather terms, such as feeling kind of stormy, or really bright and sunny today, or a bit hazy, or a chance of rain. Partly to make it very accessible, but there's also a teaching in there that our feelings move and change, much like the weather moves and changes. And it's a really important part of gaining emotional intelligence. Because part of the fears that, you know, strong feelings in and of themselves are not problematic to be afraid or to be sad or to be angry. Um, But we get afraid of the feelings or afraid that if we allow ourselves to experience that we're just going to be stuck in that from now on. And it's actually just the opposite that's true. If we become accustomed to recognizing very healthy, natural responses to distressing facts, a distressing situation that's occurring, and we allow those feelings to arise, we give them validation, we find ways to express them, we connect with others who are feeling the same thing, they tend to shift and flow and it actually frees up our energy to be more available for other things.
6: Another thing I noticed is that you coach your readers to avoid catastrophic or black and white thinking. You give them an exercise to reframe those thoughts, which I think is a version of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, So I'm curious, how did the tools of psychotherapy strengthen this book? I mean, they seem to be sort of underpinning the book, essentially.
1: Yes, yes. Well, it's really helpful to understand how our nervous system and our brain works. So as humans, children and adults, we don't like to be in an in-between, not quite sure what's gonna happen, unknown place. And so some of what you see, and, and I'll talk for a minute more about adults, but it really applies to kids too. You see some of the denial or the turning away, which we call disavowal. We may acknowledge that climate change is real, but too big, too busy kind of approach. Or some people go toward doom, like it's too late, we can't do anything, just, you know, resignation. And paradoxically, moving to either one of those places provides a kind of psychological relief, even the doom, because it gets us out of this unsettled in-between place where we can't really land easily. And catastrophizing is one version of that. There's Other elements that go into doing that but it just gets there's only one thing black and white thinking Uh, hard to stand in the ambivalence hard to stand in the we're not sure what's gonna happen and it's too scary to face into this sense of a void but it does get reframed as that unknown is also creative potential you know if you think of an artist looking at a canvas or a dancer in an empty room about to create movement, it's the fact that that it's open and undefined and a lot of room for possibility that welcomes in a creative response. So it's getting kids familiar with what they may tend to do because so many of these defenses are unconscious in in kids and adults so to increase the awareness to reframe it in terms of creative possibilities and to have tools that build an emotional resiliency to tolerate things like uncertainty or big feelings
6: you touched on this earlier but i'm curious as you've been practicing if you find there is a difference. Or maybe what's different about helping children cope with climate change and these feelings like eco-anxiety and grief, as opposed to adults?
1: Well, You know, it's really interesting to look at our lifespan from infants through old age in a developmental model. How kids and definitely adults are in relationship to both their feelings and internal landscape and big Issues like climate change really begin to vary over time. Kids tend to be more curious, more open, more able to access creative expression through art, for example. So in that sense, there's a lot of malleability, a lot more possibility, beliefs and perspectives haven't solidified. Kids may be carrying their family and parental perspectives about something. So I'm not saying it's, you know, completely undefined ground, but in general, there's a lot more movement there versus people who are older have often invested a lot in their lifestyle, in their beliefs, in their, what they think is important. And it gets a little harder to introduce new ways of viewing things, new things to consider.
6: So are there points of opening where adults can find, um, (laughs) you know, a chance? Are there things that can shift somebody's perspective, things you've found that are effective in kind of helping people find new tools?
1: Yes, I will speak to that. But let me add one more thing about children and youth, which is that especially as they get to middle school, certainly high school, definitely early college years, It's the time in life when you look to the future. Do I want to get married? What kind of relationship would I want? What's my career path? What do do I dream and envision my life might look like? And boy, you know, that is where the youth today are really feeling the climate anxiety and the climate grief because they are tuned in to the scientific projections about what could unfurl, especially without significant and immediate action that changes a lot of systemic structures. There's such a tremendous need to support our youth, not only those in the 16 to 24, but the way this book is oriented, those who are traveling through the slightly younger ages and will be there soon, how can we better equip them emotionally? How to to think through even getting accurate information because social media is this other whole complicated area. How can we help them form communities of strength and again, invest their talents and interests in a way that would support this shift? But uh, to jump back to your question about adults and open-mindedness, I'm sure you're aware being in journalism and the media world, eco-anxiety and eco-grief have just jumped way up in public awareness, as well as the climate change issue as a whole. And it gets harder to brush it off when Even if you haven't outrun a flood or a wildfire, uh, even if you haven't lived through a hurricane or a tornado, when it's unseasonably warm, when you live in an area that's never needed air conditioning, and now you're wondering if you should invest in that, it gets harder and harder to put it off somewhere else. It's affecting other people someplace, somewhere off in the future. It's just coming closer and closer to home. And... That's an eye-opener and something that gives people pause.
6: Right. So your book also includes profiles of young climate activists and encourages civic action and engagement in climate issues. Why is it so important to foster personal resilience in our kids and young people, especially those who want to be part of the climate solution?
1: Well, a couple of very practical reasons are, unless we know how to nurture ourselves kind of Reset, uh, replenish. It leads to burnout. I mean, I you know I'm often invited to speak on panels that include young activists, and they they talk about that very openly. You know, there's this sense of urgency. They've got all this energy. They're putting everything they can into it, but it's challenging work and can be frustrating work. It's not easy to see immediate benefits from all this time, effort, and energy. And they struggle kind of staying invested because of burnout. I think burnout's a good way to talk about it. But by building in these emotional resiliency tools, it helps bring things into balance. It makes it possible to be in it for the long run. The other practical reason is that we can be more effective. There's something in the book called the window of tolerance or the zone of resilience. And it describes how our brains work. That again, if we have too many stressors, too many things on our plate, too many intense emotions or experiences, we tend to lash out and get reactive or we tend to drop out and isolate and withdraw. And if we're in either one of those places, we can't do the work we want to do. All this attention to emotional intelligence and emotional resiliency is about helping people get familiar with that zone of resilience, where the edges are, how to grow it, how to stretch it.
6: Well, as we come to the end here, the book is dedicated to those yet to join us in this beautiful place, which to me was a really lovely expression of hope for our future generation or generations. So what are the most important things parents should know about supporting their children through climate anxiety and depression?
1: One is to do their own work. In some ways, the kids are more involved in it than many of the adults, so it's going to be challenging for parents, for teachers, for caregivers to look squarely at that issue themselves and their own lives. And kids are also little integrity detectives, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you can talk about, you know, reducing waste or single-use items, but if you've got that Starbucks coffee cup on your desk, uh, it raises questions and they'll, they'll say something. But also to just make room for and welcome the feelings. You know, it's, again, something as a culture that we are all learning to do even as adults to validate that the feelings are there because you care, because you're empathetic, because you're paying attention, because it is distressing what's happening to the environment and people and our ecosystem as a whole, our biosphere as a whole. Not to stay there, but to validate it as a starting point. And that, again, as we started out with, those feelings tend to fluctuate. They come, they go, they're like the weather, but they're a very natural response and part of this. And we get into bigger trouble if we try and push it aside.
6: Leslie Davenport is a licensed psychotherapist and author of All the Feelings Under the Sun, How to Deal with Climate Change. Thank you so much for joining us today on Climate One. Thank you for having me.
0: On this Climate One, we've been talking about the power of Zen, mindfulness, and connecting with our emotions as we face the fires and floods and climate disruption all around us. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be difficult, depressing, and scary, but it's critically important. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Ariana Brocious is our producer and audio editor. Our audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox, Kelly Pennington and Tyler Reed. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.